This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. Today we have Professor Robert Patman and of the uh, University of Otago, published in the field of international relations. And we have um, Professor Alexander Gillespie at the Faculty of Law at the University of Waikato, who's uh, done work in law, international relations, and a six-volume, four volumes of a six-volume book on the causes of war and the justifications given. Um, Alexander may be coming in a few minutes later because we've had a few technical hiccups, but we're we're fine now. We'll start off. How are you, Robert? I'm fine, thanks, uh, Marvin. Well, it's good to talk with you again. Thank you. Good to talk to you. The, you... Um, and uh, Alexander Gillespie co-authored an article urging caution to New Zealand's approach to AUKUS security pact. Yes. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, AUKUS, yes. Yes. Um, what, what caused you to write this article? Um, it was a Zoom conversation between Al and myself and, um, and some other people for a forthcoming conference that we duly attended um, in Auckland. And um, I mentioned that I felt that AUKUS was potentially a momentous decision for New Zealand. And uh, Al expressed an interest in that, and we came together to write a co-authored piece. Um, And, uh, yeah, that was published in the conversation. And it was a response to some of the commentary that New Zealand could, without much cost to its status as a nuclear, anti-nuclear power, could um, join AUKUS, the non-nuclear part of AUKUS, so-called Pillar 2 of AUKUS, and, and could do this without any great cost to its uh, non-nuclear security reputation and would not be left behind in terms of access to cutting-edge technology and um, 
I, I in particular was quite sceptical about those ideas. And, um, yeah, we, we reached a, a joint position in the piece where we urged caution. Um, we do think a lot is at stake for New Zealand. There seems to be an assumption that New Zealand can have its, in some quarters, that New Zealand can have its cake and eat it. It can join Pillar 2 of AUKUS and um, uh, and therefore it won't have any reverberations. I, I suppose for our listeners we should point out what AUKUS is. Um, AUKUS is an enhanced security arrangement between Australia, the UK, United Kingdom and the US. It was established in September 2021. Um, and as a first major initiative, AUKUS leaders confirmed in March this year that Australia will buy three US Virginia-class nuclear power submarines. Um, in addition, it's projected that by the 2050s, um, Australia will take on between five and eight additional submarines, um, which will have American technology and a British design. Um, this package the financial costs of this package are huge, um, from something like $268 billion to $368 billion. That's uh, Australian dollars. So this, in the words of Anthony Albanese, is the biggest single um, financial commitment Australia's made in the national security realm. And um, we were excluded at the beginning from being part of it because we're a non-nuclear power. We have legislation to underpin that. Um, but there has been quite a bit of advocacy in some quarters within New Zealand that we should join the second pillar, Pillar 2, which deals with cooperation in cutting-edge technology. And um, we took strong exception to that in the article but the article was, I think, a balanced attempt to look at the case for and against. And we came down in the article um, recommending uh, caution. And I think the key reason we recommend caution is that um, New Zealand cannot control external perceptions of our participation in such an arrangement. And um, we also believe that New Zealand has a distinctive worldview from the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia. And uh, as the world becomes more and more interconnected, it's important that New Zealand shouldn't necessarily compromise its own worldview to, accom to accommodate the views of some of its allies. We were also sceptical that AUKUS is a credible counterweight to China. China, when, when AUKUS was signed, was not identified explicitly as being the reason for the uh, security arrangement. But um, there's no doubt about it. It is, a it is a response to what is seen as Chinese assertiveness. Uh, we don't have any illusions. I don't think either our or I have any illusions about Chinese assertiveness. But we are sceptical um, that AUKUS is the appropriate response. Uh, how could we really keep an independent foreign policy and 
Because having an independent foreign policy, your foreign policy has to be perceived as independent, doesn't it? It does. And one of the difficulties that AUKUS are running into is that there are three English-speaking states which are seeking to, as they put it, uphold the international rules-based order in a part of the in a part of the world where sixty percent of the population is, they are three English speaking countries, but th- their their approach doesn't cut a lot of ice with other countries such as Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, all of whom are very concerned about Chinese assertiveness as well. But they do not see AUKUS as a serious effort to deal with China's assertiveness, and so. When if if New Zealand joined this, I think there's a danger that New Zealand will be seen as falling into um, line with the American British approach to the international rules based order, which is to maintain the status quo of which they both have veto rights in the Security Council. I think New Zealand's posi- view on the international rules based order is we should not only uphold the existing order, but we should strengthen it. And that involves reforming the UN Security Council and ideally abolishing the veto. So New Zealand's position is quite different, um, related but different. And um, while we share a lot with the United Kingdom, uh, Australia and the US, um, you know, the, the positions are not identical. So I suppose really... I think uh, unity can be maintained with our traditional allies, but it doesn't have to be uniformity. In some ways, it's harder for us to maintain that we have an independent foreign policy if we're if our alliance is with totally English-speaking countries in a traditional way. Well, I think the crucial line. It, the crucial issue is that many um, ASEAN has signed the nuclear weapon free zone treaty i think it was 1995 and the pacific island states signed the treaty of rarotonga of which new zealand and australia were party to which was to create a nuclear free zone in the south pacific so the danger is that new zealand's been championing um a non-nuclear security, we, for example, were a key player in putting forward the um, treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons. Um, Having given that leadership, it looks like we're taking a backward step if we join an organisation which is in the process of transferring nuclear technology to a non-nuclear power, which is Australia, from the United States and the United Kingdom, to Australia. And so coming back to your question, uh, Marvin, I think it, there is a perception that it could undermine our anti-nuclear credentials and it could raise questions about how independent our stance on a nuclear-free world is. Do you think there are actors in New Zealand who aren't as keen on a nuclear-free treaty and a totally independent foreign policy as others? I, I'm not sure there are. I think many of the people championing AUKUS, uh, championing uh, New Zealand's associate membership of AUKUS, or New Zealand wouldn't be a, a full member, 
um, believe that um, the, ri- the 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 benefits outweigh the risks. I think that Alexandra and myself took the opposite view that the risks outweigh the benefits. Well, speaking about and- the benefits, uh, I think of two former prime ministers of Australia have real doubts about orcas f- for Australia's sake. Yes, Paul Keating is one, I know, yeah. Um, I mean, he was quite scathing. What are some of his points against it? Uh, I think Paul Keating believes that it's very expensive. He doesn't, uh, he also doesn't see China as a threat to the territorial integrity of Australia. Okay, welcome, Alexander. We got Alexander back online. Good afternoon. You've been listening to this or some of it? Yeah, I just picked it up. Anything you want to add at this point? I I would just add to what Robert was saying that there are certain people who are pushing a very forthright advocacy for AUKUS, whereas I think the position that Robert and I have got is one of caution. It's just that we need more information and more debate before a final decision can even be started because this is... I think we would both believe a decision that has huge implications for the country. Let's go back to Paul Keating's um, criticism of Arcus for Australia. And he's not the first person who's made some... There was a former uh, chief of staff of the Australian Army that was not too happy about having a, a large marine base in Australia a while back. Now, what's... What are the main problems with orcas as far as Australia is concerned? Uh, sorry, Marvin, are you asking Al or myself? Uh, either. Uh, oh, 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 I'll go for you first because you were already okay. talking about uh, Well, I, 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 my, my sense is, um, having read and watched Paul Keating in action, that uh, Mr. Keating believes that China is not a direct threat to the Australian mainland, but he's also sceptical about the expenditure involved. Um, It's a huge outlay, and he points out that 50 or 45 conventional diesel-powered submarines would be much better to protect Australia's very large economic exclusive zone, or exclusive economic zone, I should say, um, which I think is fourth largest in the world, And he doesn't take the view that three nuclear-powered submarines, which will be only available by the 2032, will do the job. It's not enough in his mind, and it's too costly. The other thing is that um, he's very worried about the direction that Australia may be dragged, um, not so much at the moment under the Biden administration, but possibly with a change of administration in Washington. So uh, I, I think he really doubts why Australia is paying so much. And I think he feels that Australia, uh, I, to use his words, is helping to fund the US military-industrial complex to some degree, uh, and it's not actually looking out for its own national interests enough. So, uh, But look, I, I've spoken enough. Let, let, let Al come in. Uh, I'll just add to that. The, the way I see the Australian position, it, it's largely its economics Partly it's legal because there are questions around nuclear proliferation and the regime involved. But I think for a lot of Australians right now, they're 
deeper concern is not those two, but if there is a conflict with China, they're now in the front line. And you're seeing that with the the expansion of American forces in, in Darwin and this type of technology, that there's no debate. This this would make it a target zone. And I think it's kind of made the war, the possibility of conflict much closer to home. And I, I think the Australians are beginning to feel that this situation is spinning a little bit quicker than they would like. As the military containment of China, really the way to go to deal with uh, China's arrogance in its own backyard. Well, I'm not sure China can be contained. It's a very big country. It's the second biggest economy in the world. And uh, I, I think in our article, Al and I didn't have any illusions about Chinese assertiveness. But the, the question is that is China best constrained in its ambitions by an arrangement involving three English-speaking countries, two of whom have got baggage in the region. So the question is then, you know, do you need a more inclusive multilateral security-enhanced arrangement? And um, America's not short of allies in the region. And so, yeah, it's a bit puzzling, really. I, I, I was intrigued by the point Al just made. I think he's absolutely right. Um, from the Australian point of view, um, this raises the stakes, but it doesn't actually do much to protect them until 2032 uh, at the earliest. So it's uh, it's the worst of both worlds. It's, it's actually making the Chinese, f- convincing the Chinese, yes, indeed, Australia seems to be the deputy sheriff. But in, on the other hand, um, not giving Australia the wherewithal to cope with that perception. So... I, I think my sense is a debate is beginning to open up both in New Zealand and I think one is beginning to develop in, in New Zealand as well about this approach to dealing with China. And the other thing I would just mention, Keating touched on this um, in one of his podcasts. In fact, to some degree, it plays into China's a narrative that it's encircled and it's a victim. And um, I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying, mm-hmm. it, 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 in a sense, it, it is a bit of a, a propaganda windfall in some way for China. Um, no one. So I think the real question is: is that strategy is about a good relationship between means and ends. If your end is to curb Chinese assertiveness, is the means is AUKUS the right means to do it? And I think that's a crucial question that we need to think about. China is a. If, if, if I can just add to that, I think it's a very important point that Robert and I both agree on is is that there are a lot of challenges with China. We, we don't dismiss these and we think that they're very real, but it's a question of how we go about these challenges. And I think one of the things we agree on is the importance of a, a larger multilateral effort as opposed to just a, a few small English speaking countries coming together. But ultimately, and this is my view, that the importance of international agreement in this area is critical. And because you don't want this to spin out of control, but we've got to get the right steps towards that. Because right now there is a gap and you have got an arms race and you've got limited military security systems in place. And But until we get to that point, we've got to make sure that the next steps that we take don't inflame the situation. In the case of Russia and the invasion of um, 
Ukraine, to some extent, the United States leadership has meant that uh, the BRIC company, countries haven't really come on board as, as you would expect them, maybe because it's talking about freedom in a very Western way instead of international law and sovereignty, which has totally been betrayed by Russia. But there, you have to think about who's going to Who's going to support your policies, and how do you integrate the, that support, don't you? You do. Um, you've got to be mindful for support. But at the same time, I do think there are simply some, there are certain core principles which should not be uh, violated. And if they are violated, I, I'm ba- I'm genuinely baffled. By, I've been baffled by China's ambivalence towards the Ukraine conflict because it's not actually doing its foreign policy much good and I think there may be voices in Beijing quietly pointing that out Um, and secondly um, we've got South Africa and a number of other countries buying into the false narrative that the West uh, basically is responsible for the Ukraine crisis that um, NATO enlargement was the driving force and that Russia uh, has launched a defensive invasion of a neighbouring country. I I think it's incumbent on the leaders of um, the countries supporting Ukraine to challenge that narrative. Well, that's why Um, I was talking about sovereignty instead of of freedom. Sorry? They violated a nation's national sovereignty, which is against international law. Yes. Which makes all nations less fit, makes all other nations less safe. Yeah, I, I I would agree with that, but I think with regards to the those middle-ranked countries like India and South Africa and Brazil, and to a degree China, you you do see a degree of hedging their bets with which way they're going to go on this. Mm. And I I think even though there's a majority in the United Nations General Assembly and it's positive, I, th- there's a middle ground there which, which is, is is a concern with the way that, that they're, they're seeing the issue. They don't see it the strongest issues of international law. But one point I would come back to, and that's with regards to China, that they have put forward a peace proposal. And the, the peace proposal is not perfect, but in my opinion, it's a very good start. And their, their first principle is about territorial integrity and respect for the United Nations Charter. And so there's a lot to discuss, but I think some of these countries are trying to find a way through. But it's difficult right now to even have discussions around China, but I think we've all got to start trying to reach out and find a pathway towards peace. It seems to me that it's not unusual for a large nation to be touchy about their their coastline and their, um, I mean, in the United States, it'd be the Caribbean, and even Latin America, but particularly the Caribbean and Central America, that they just don't like people interfering in. Yeah, but... Uh, I, I'm not that, saying they're right. In either no, case. no, I think you're absolutely right. I think great powers do believe they're entitled to special perks, that their sovereignty counts more than others. But I think we're in the 21st century, an interconnected world. We are living at a time of international transition. And um, uh, it, it seems to me... 
um, that we do need clarity um, around some fundamental rules. But may- and, uh, maybe I'll, I'll just add to that. I think Robert's completely correct. This is the 21st century. This isn't the 19th century with President Monroe and the Monroe Doctrine saying you can't interfere in our back garden. That this is a, a very different world, and we have to be a rules-based order because if we're not based on law and order, the, the consequences are catastrophic. I, I would add, yeah, I agree with Al, and I would add to that. We live in a world where great powers cannot sort out or resolve the problems facing all of us. And, you know, in a sense, when the United Nations was set up, five countries were given a veto on the assumption that when, it, A, that they should be within the United Nations, which was a good thing, having great powers within the organisation, not outside it. But secondly, there was the assumption that those countries were best placed to help contribute to the resolution of problems that affected many. The, what's happened in the intervening period, however, is that we're increasingly confronted with problems such as climate change, such as transnational terrorism, such as pandemics like COVID-19, such as an expanded global economy, which can't be solved by any countries, however powerful, acting on their own. And in a sense, we do need rules which not only respect the rights and prerogatives of the great powers, but also the, the rights and the prerogatives of the majority, which is the middle powers and the small powers. And it, it seems to me um, it's in the interest of the great, the great powers themselves to ensure those rules are held in check. Let's be quite clear. If Mr. Putin is rewarded for his aggression in Ukraine, um, countries like New Zealand would suffer quite considerably. If the message goes goes out that might is right and that if you invade a country, you can be rewarded with a chunk of territory, that's destabilising. We, we are a small country, but a, an active global trader. That would be um, unacceptable from our point of view because... It would mean that the rules-based order or the rule of law internationally was basically relative. It depended how powerful you were. And that means that we'd be going back to a situation where the bigger players could dictate to the middle powers and the smaller powers. And that that's not acceptable, not only to New Zealand, but to most countries in the international order. After all, great powers, they're a relatively small minority. The, the majority of countries in the international order are the middle and uh, small powers. So we've got to keep a sense of proportion here. And I do think what's at stake in the Ukraine has big implications, not only for New Zealand, but for many other countries. I'm, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm just saying I'm wondering about why and how other countries think about it. But I was, isn't economic itself and the United Nations two approaches to China? that can also be used instead of containment, which probably isn't possible? Um, I think, you know, I think Al and I touched on this in our co-authored piece in the conversation. I think we should have no illusions about Chinese assertiveness, but we shouldn't exaggerate the threat either. China's spending about a third of what the United States does on military capabilities. Um, It is critically dependent on two key Western markets, which is the EU and the United States. Uh, It makes tremendous export earnings from those markets. 
that's not going to change overnight. And China's decision makers are aware of that. They also are inextricably intertwined with the Japanese economy, which is the third largest in the world. When you put it like that, you realize that China has points of vulnerability. And I'm not saying they should be exploited or anything like that. But China has risen to superpower status because it's been an enthusiastic and successful player in in the global market economy. And in a sense, it's not going to reverse itself on that. I don't think it's going to suddenly try to go it alone in the 21st century. But uh, it's important to have a sense of proportion, I think, about the Chinese threat. At times, you feel like when you hear some commentators, China's poised to sort of push America out of the way and just effortlessly take over the world. And and for the blockade around New Zealand. That's right. <laughs> and the reality is so different. And I, I think what Al and I were calling for um, was basically an approach which was measured, which were, took into account that China is assertive, but at the same time, it, it, it's not the, you know, the hegemon in waiting that many people are depicting it. And it's got many internal problems as well, which we haven't touched on. I thought one of the more interesting things that um, Paul Keating said was that in spite of China's power and so on, it, it wasn't would be a very difficult and pointless exercise for them to actually attack Australia because mm. of the... That, that, that may or may not be correct, but part of my concern is that you can just walk down this path. It's, it's so easy to walk down, but then when conflict does start, it just spills in ways you don't expect. So it might not be rational mm. to attack Australia right now, but if war did break out hypothetically over Taiwan, it's not impossible. And at the moment, I become concerned that we just keep removing these safeguards that we have that keep that at bay. But the more you go towards agreements which militarize and which drive processes and which decision-making is not always clear or transparent, the risks get greater. Mm, I agree with that. I mean, people often... We believe our own intuition... If we, and sometimes that's not, doesn't work. I think Putin is a clear example of somebody who uh, believed basically untruths after he'd said them. Yeah. Well, I think declaratory policy and substantive policy, I think there's something of a gap in Mr. Putin's world. Uh, he only said three days before Russia launched its so called special military operation. Russia would never invade Ukraine. But, of course, then he, he defended that position by saying that a special military operation wasn't an invasion. Russia was simply reclaiming Russian territory, which was being temp temporarily under the control of 44 million Ukrainians. So, you know, but it, it, it's... I think Mr Putin, like many authoritarian leaders, and I wouldn't um, say that China's leaders are immune from this, um, they concentrate enormous power in their own hands over many years. Mm. And it means that increasingly they're living in a bubble. People who could give them good, crisp, independent advice uh, may not be privy to speak to the mm. leaders. And, um, you know, I, I think in a sense, 
I think Mr. Putin has been confounded by what's happened. He did seem to think that he had the second most mobile army in the world, which would just run through Ukraine like a knife through butter. He didn't think the Western world would respond. Um, or at least he didn't think it would respond in time to provide any decent assistance. Uh, and I think it's the sort of delusional thinking that sometimes happens when you have amassed great power. This is the danger all authoritarian leaders face. And often the best decision making, in my experience, comes when you bring people together who are quite prepared to exchange and sometimes bitterly argue with each other over issues because it's that exchange of information which often pinpoints some of the weaknesses of the approaches being taken and eventually you can you know from a rational point of view move towards a, a pretty solidly based approach going forward but I, I as i say i think authoritarian leaders don't have that process available they tend to surround themselves with cronies um and that the, the results are often disastrous in the long term it seems to me that the fact that China's power is really, I mean, Russia's, what power they had was military, even though it's turned out to be failed and totally uh, illusionary. But China's power is, is mostly economic and to a certain extent diplomatic. And that's why I wonder if that isn't one of the better approaches to getting to negotiating with them. You, you have to use the tools of the system and working within the World Trade Organization to discuss the way that they interact is correct and to work with them diplomatically is also correct and always to find aspects of cooperation. But there are parts of Chinese power now which are becoming much more influential than in the past. They have the numbers now that they can control some of the bodies in the United Nations. And so the ability for dissent over controversial topics like human rights is becoming much harder. If I, if I could just come back to one of the earlier points so that um, that Robert was making about the war. And the, the, this war in the Ukraine, is, it's not like Chechnya and it's not like Georgia. This is an unsustainable conflict. And the amount of manpower that's been thrown into it and the death rates, I see this as something which is at risk of escalation. I know we're in a few days, it's gone down in the news cycle, but I think we have to be very careful about this because some people just kind of assume it'll disappear like it did with the former conflict or like Syria. I don't see that. I still see the risk that this could easily spill outside the borders. And that's why it's very important that we keep having as many discussions about alternative ways out of it. But, you know, on... One other aspect that I think Robert and I both agree with, and that's the New Zealand support for the Ukraine, you know, and in terms of the assistance, I think it, it's been the right steps and it shows that you can do things without necessarily having to be party to a new agreement. You can still exist within the existing framework of NATO and have a good partnership and still contribute. Okay, I think we might have a bit of music now. Here they come marching past the houses, shiny boots and khaki blouses, stiff as the creases in their trousers, standing tall and straight and strong. The 
And they all keep in step together Glint of steel and flash of leather Braving every kind of weather As they boldly march along You can dismiss it as a ploy For the enlistment of the boys Who'll be impressed to see the toys And play the games that can be played And you may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade Look at your sons before they're older They'll be stronger, they'll be bolder Just the thing to make a soldier And we'll turn them into men And they'll be taught to follow orders Keep the peace and guard the borders To protect us from marauders And defend us to the end But the position they'll be filling Is to be able and be willing To be killed or do the killing When there's a price that must be paid And you may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade In the pursuit of a community Of decency and unity And equal opportunity We stand prepared to fight And if there's a threat to our position From an unruly opposition Then with guns and ammunition We'll repel with all our might And we'll dehumanize and hate them Sending the troops to decimate them As in the name of all the nation All it stands for is betrayed And you may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade For merely the whim or intuition of an elected politician Makes a melee with no conditions Once the monster quits the cage It's a machine that gives no quarter Dealing death and sowing slaughter Raping mothers, wives and daughters In an all-consuming rage And we may well believe we need it And we'll pay to arm and feed it But can you tell me who will lead it When the decisions must be made And you may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade Some will wonder what's to fear And say that there's no danger here But there has never been a year When soldiers haven't been at war And all the evil executions And the bloody revolutions And the ultimate solutions too Have all been seen before And there is always someone scheming And sometimes at night when dreaming In the distance I hear screaming And in my heart I feel afraid And you may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade They come marching past the houses Shiny boots and khaki blouses Stiff as the creases in their trousers Standing tall and straight and strong And is it any cause for pride That now the women march beside them Will there be wiser gods to guide them In discerning right from wrong For every step is a reminder Of the threat that lies behind If we forget the ties that bind us When the authentic game is played 
probably will prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade And as the procession passes by Consider the sight before your eyes Cause it'll be you they kill and die For if they are called to the crusade For you may love them and adore them You may hate them and abhor them But for Christ's sake don't ignore them When the boys are on parade Do you think China may be saying that it would be better for China if Russia was persuaded to back off Ukraine? Well, that's that's one way you could interpret the peace plan, isn't it? I know Al's sort of hinted at this. Um, uh, and, I, you know, from the Ukrainian point of view, the Chinese peace plan is not perfect. It doesn't calls for a it doesn't call for a withdrawal of uh, Russian troops, and it doesn't um, call for sanction. It, it calls for sanctions to be lifted. But uh, you could also say, uh, by stressing ter- the term in territorial integrity, that it basically is undermining the rationale for Russia invading uh, Ukraine. I think China is genuinely conflicted about what's happening. I think on the one hand. China doesn't like the fact that core principles of its own foreign policy, such as territorial integrity and um, state sovereignty, have been trampled by a junior partner, namely Russia. And by the way, China sees Russia as a junior partner. China has a very hierarchical view of the world, and um, they are very conscious that Russia's economy is about the size of Italy's. And they regard Mr. Putin as an ambitious wannabe. And uh, I think they've got the measure of him in that sense. But at the same time, and here comes the contradiction, I think their nightmare scenario is that this Ukrainian, the looming Ukrainian counteroffensive will be very successful. Putin will lose control of Crimea and thereby get ejected from power because they do not want to see... Um, another authoritarian leader ejected from power and they also will be uncertain about who follows Putin. Um, It's likely if Putin was ejected in the short term, it will be someone from maybe the Putin regime. But maybe, maybe. but from the Chinese point of view, there might be the risk of a pro-Western leader emerging. So I think there's a, I I think that peace plan that Al outlined sort of captures the contradiction in some way, the Chinese position. Logically, they should have come out against Putin's invasion because Putin's invasion actually undermines their case to some degree for Taiwan. I I, I think that's key. To me, the way I look at their peace plan, they're using language around territorial integrity and sovereignty. They're talking Taiwan. They're they're not talking to Ukraine. But at least it's consistent with where they want to go. Okay, what's what is their position on sovereignty and so when it comes to Taiwan? Well, yeah, I think it's you know, but, you know, I, I, my sense is that it's uh, that they take the view that Taiwan is part of China. They they cite the agreement with the United States that there's one China um, and um, two systems of one China, but 
um, I, I think that the Chinese seem to be unbending on the idea. Of course, Taiwan has never been part of the People's Republic of China. No, not the People's but Republic. They do have this claim, and I don't see any sense <laughs> that they're going to back down on it. And yeah. I think Xi Jinping in particular has, you know, raised the temperature, saying that this is an issue that has to be settled if necessary, as he always says. We want to do it peacefully, but if necessary, by force. So I, I don't, I, I don't see that. Xi Jinping will back down on his conception of sovereignty, which includes Taiwan under Chinese control. So may I add as well, I think the situation became more difficult after what happened with Hong Kong, because with Hong Kong, there was considerable hopes for autonomy and promises were made and these were not honored. And so I think once these agreements failed with Hong Kong, people have very little faith that Taiwan could be managed in a similar way. Mm. And just to add to that, I, I do think there's a connection. Uh, I mean, I was very interested when Al said, you know, the Russian peace plan, uh, sorry, the Chinese peace plan was talking about territorial integrity with respect to Taiwan. I think he's absolutely right. It shows you the connection to some degree from the Chinese decision-making point of view between Ukraine and its own geopolitical problems uh, closer to China, I do think the outcome, we don't know what the outcome will be of the conflict um, in Ukraine following the illegal Russian invasion. We don't know the outcome. But I do think it will have a major impact um, in global politics in the 21st century. And uh, from China's point of view, um, I think they are very fearful that uh, Putin's collapse if Putin did collapse and he lost the war, that could, if you like, un unleash um, pressures globally, which they would not see as their in round, would not be in their interest with respect to their own ambitions around uh, Taiwan. Is there and any, so, um, Alexander, is there any way that a, a territory that's considered legally part of a, another a country's territory can their um, independence of action or autonomy be secured? Oh, I, well, I, I mean, mean what you, legally you can't annex another country. You, yeah. you can't just take someone else's territory. That's illegal yeah. and that, that's quite a clear principle. But in practice, what you did see in the early part of the 21st century was agreements for autonomy within some sovereign territories. And so you had what was called the Minsk Agreement in the Ukraine, where, whereby there was it was still going to be part of the Ukraine, but there would be significant autonomy for those populations that were effectively pro-Russian. But those agreements were not, there was two of them, and they, they ground to a halt before the invasion. But there, there are ways through it that a country can still be, remain part of the sovereign space of another country but can have considerable autonomy so that those populations can govern themselves i'm thinking in some ways in taiwan because i can't see china suddenly saying that taiwan's not part of our sovereignty but also yeah, no, no i'd agree the, 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 i don't think the chinese are going to say that taiwan can remain autonomous and certainly if they make a move towards becoming more sovereign in legal 
wording than they are in political practice, I think you could have a conflict breakout. And every time that you see the Taiwanese make assertions of their independence and sovereignty, you see very aggressive Chinese war games around the borders. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very true. And um, I'd add to that that China doesn't really want to have a, a conflict over Taiwan because, of course, for the reasons we've gone through, because it would have it would have catastrophic costs for China. It, Taiwan wouldn't be a pushover militarily. It's been supported by the United States for many years. It's relatively small, what, 26 million people, but it's a mountainous island. And although it's close to China, it would be quite a bloody campaign. I think the outcome would be pretty clear. But the economic consequences globally for China uh, could be very, very serious indeed. Um, And I would expect both the EU and US would probably take some form of sanctions if there was any military assault by China on Taiwan. And again, China has to be very careful because it's in a curious position of having a communist one-party state whose rise to power has been based on full-blooded participation in the world capitalist system. If it jeopardizes that through getting using muscle muscular action in Taiwan, that could have implications for the leadership in Beijing. After all, um, the Communist Party in China, part of its legitimacy stems on its ability to deliver economic growth. If it took actions in its foreign policy which endangered that growth, that could have political blowback for the Chinese leadership. So it's a very tricky situation for the Chinese leadership. Could they accept... Sovereignty of some kind of secure autonomy under their legal sovereignty, not like Hong Kong, but something much more uh, believable and uh, enforceable. I doubt it. I, I, I think with Hong Kong, there were gaps with regards to the security laws that were never concluded, which is why they intervened in the end. But I think. With, with Taiwan, you've got a, fu- a fully functioning democracy to a much greater degree than what you had in Hong Kong. And you had an assembly in Hong Kong, but I don't think that the Chinese would tolerate the kind of democracy and rich dissent that you get within a liberal system that you get with Taiwan. I just can't see them accepting that underneath their flag. It could be a Trojan horse if they did accept it. That would be difficult. <laughs> So uh, you'd have to be careful. So that makes a very difficult situation. Yeah, unfortunately, that is the reality, isn't it? It is a very tricky situation, and I, we get the feeling that Taiwan is going to be a flashpoint at, at, at some time in the twenties or the thirties, and it's very difficult to get away from it. Um, and I do think, coming back to the situation we've been talking about, AUKUS and the Ukraine. Um, It it seems to me that, you know, what happens in the Ukraine, and I would not be surprised if there are decisive developments this year, um, will cast a long shadow on global politics. Uh, If Mr. Putin succeeds in wresting territory from Ukraine, that could embolden China, Um, although they may not be particularly pleased about what Mr. Putin's done. They, you know, they may on balance prefer him to stay in power rather than lose power. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me that we seem to be on something of a collision course over Taiwan at some point. What it, the timing is the the key issue. Um, so it it is a, a an, an interesting international challenge. And coming back to the article that Al and I did, I think what we were trying to do was try to make people aware that it, it you know an enhanced security arrangement involving three countries may sound good, but once you start breaking it down and some of the assumptions behind it and some of the risks as well as benefits, then you need to be sure there is a clear relationship between the means and ends of that strategy. And, um, yeah, and I think, you know, as academics, we will probably try to encourage decision makers to think rationally about their strategic policy uh, we, as a country, have taken a more nuanced view towards China. Uh, the previous Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, was very careful always, even after the, even after China was ambiguous about the Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Very, the prime, previous Prime Minister was very careful, as she put it, not to pigeonhole China with Russia. Yeah, and, um, right. Yeah. Well, that would be a mistake because they're very different countries. Yes, I, yeah. I think it would also be a mistake because of our economic dependency upon China. Yeah. And I, I would argue we should become more interested in other markets as much as we can. Yeah. But that China could time. change our economy so quickly without even blinking if they wanted to. I mean, that they could take exports from part, other parts of the world that New Zealand provides quite easily. And so we, we do have a vulnerability which is far from desirable, but it's what we do have. And yes, some, I agree with that, and I think if they think that they can hack the image of being good friends with a small Western country, they probably like that. But if if we're no longer considered friends at all in the Asian sense, um, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, I, I think I, I don't think China necessarily has ambitions to change our political system maybe it has but I, my sense is that it it's got enough on its plate as it is but um i i think china has appreciated new zealand's position internationally for some time they see china as a country uh, china sees new zealand as a country which doesn't shy away from making tough independent decisions occasionally such as non-nuclear security when it had a rift with the United States and also um, refusing to support the illegal US invasion of Iraq. Um, so I think that's appreciated by Chinese decision makers. Um, and I don't think they necessarily want to, they, they probably would like to have the relationship with New Zealand more on its own terms. But um, at the same time, I don't think they necessarily um, would like to jeopardize the overall relationship with New Zealand. I, I think um, China is a country which needs friends. Um, and, you know, often we don't make enough effort to see the world through Chinese eyes. I don't say that to apologise to the Chinese leadership. I'm just saying the world looks quite a threatening place in many respects to Chinese decision makers. Um, technology is gaining momentum. It's not so much the ideas of Western democracy that threaten it, it's the technological revolution that we're living through makes it more and more difficult for authoritarian regimes to insulate their population and control the narrative. So, 
yeah, I mean, I I, I think that uh, I'd be. I, I think New Zealand can sustain um, a good relationship with China without backing down on its core values. I I don't think New Zealand people would accept any government here that was prepared to compromise on its core values, uh, such as uh, commitment to democracy and human rights, uh, in order to win favour in Beijing. I don't think it would. No. Okay, thanks a lot, both of you, for coming on. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Next time, maybe we can talk about the United Nations and how that could be reformed. Big topic. <laughs> Another small topic for an afternoon. But uh, but not not this afternoon. <laughs> Thanks a lot for coming on. We appreciate well, thank you. you both. Thanks, Al. Thanks, uh, Marvin. Okay, okay Robert. we'll do it Bye-bye. again. Bye. Cheers. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.